Welcome to Feeding the Flock and our expositions through the book of 2 Thessalonians. We are currently in chapter 2 at verse 8. Hi there, I'm Glendale Tony. I'm glad you joined me for this Bible study today. Let's begin reading, why don't we, in verse 8 of chapter 2 of the book of 2 Thessalonians, where Paul writes this. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So we find ourselves here in the middle of chapter 2, and of course there are passages that uh, preceded this, and we we will look at that in a moment or two. Uh, but um, this, uh, this book, this letter by Paul, can be uh, pretty readily divided by the chapters themselves, although from time to time the chapters uh, it kind of interfere with our understanding of the content. In many ways, uh, the chapters here uh, function as sort of a grid that f- kind of fall naturally in our understanding of, of the way Paul is developing his his letter here. Chapter 1 has to do with the persecution that the believers at Thessalonica are experiencing, and they've been uh, led to believe that somehow this meant they were in the day of the Lord. That is that final day that uh, it isn't a 24-hour day, but it is a a period of time in which uh, Israel is going to experience the judgment of God as well as the Gentile nations will be experiencing that judgment. And someone has come in and said, see, this is getting worse and not better. Uh, You must be in the day of the Lord. So Paul writes chapter one to say we should wait with courage. Uh, We shouldn't be deflected. We shouldn't be uh, discouraged. We shouldn't be afraid or uh, live in this, uh, in, um, in terror because of what is happening around us, because this is to be expected. And there are other things that should play out before the day of the Lord actually uh, comes about, before Jesus actually returns to this earth. There are certain things that should play out and and should uh, uh, be recognized by the people of the earth. And so chapter two has to do with that prophecy, that prophetic word from God that has been in place for uh, many, many years by the time Paul is is, uh, actually writing these things here. Uh, They've been at least in play uh, since the the book of Daniel and uh, uh, even further back than that, uh, all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the Tower of Babel. And um, so he's still talking about the prophetic themes that uh, he, he knows he has to address, and that is watching with composure, and that's chapter two. Uh, Chapter 3 has to do with the practice, that is the behavior, that now we should be conducting ourselves in such a way um, 
knowing all of these things about what to anticipate means our behavior should change, or at least our our practices as a local church um, uh, is called into uh, play because it isn't yet that we are in the day of the Lord. We are not experiencing the judgment of God on earth yet. It will come later uh, when Jesus returns, but um, we should be working with commitment, and that's chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. So then chapter 2 has uh, a, a three main ideas that we want to uh, uh, look at. And the first one has already been expressed in the first two verses in many regards. And that is our gathering to the Lord Jesus and that the day of the Lord is not yet. That's the first two verses. And then what are the signals that the day of the Lord is going to come to the earth uh, or that is, is going to to start its uh, program on the earth. And that is unalarmed by the day of the Lord verses three, through 12. And so we are in the latter part of that particular uh, portion of the chapter. Then later, uh, verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2 has to deal with being saved through the work of the Spirit. And uh, he concentrates upon the gospel and that we should be standing firm in the gospel. In the meantime, though, this is where we find ourselves. And um, we we already talked about uh, in previous episodes uh, about let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy come first. And that means there is a great falling away, a departure from the faith that is clearly recognized. And now we have always had, you might say, in 2,000 years worth of church history, we have always had people depart from the faith. But this seems to be a very dramatic, uh, almost a traumatic kind of an event that is recognizable, and uh, this comes first, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed. And this is the man that... that uh Daniel himself spoke about. He spoke about it as a little horn coming in amongst the ten horns, and um, uh, three of them are uprooted, and this uh, fellow replaces him, and he is a part of some sort of a conglomerate that would be like uh, the Roman Empire rebooted, and uh, he becomes a prominent figure there, and um, he he is identified in, in Daniel chapter 7 as this little horn, and uh, he has the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now we find him again referenced in Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. It says uh, that that after this, this first time period has elapsed, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So the fact that there's going to continue to be war, the fact that there's going to be continued to uh, uh, have destruction, um, it will look like the end uh, at various moments of history, but it will not be the end because uh, this prince who is to come hasn't been revealed yet. And uh, 
And yet we have the hint in Daniel chapter 9, in these this verse right here, verse 26, that uh, this fellow uh, comes from the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary. Who were those people? It was the people of the Roman Empire. And they, they are the ones in AD 70 that destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, dismantled everything, burned the temple, stole the gold out of the temple, and... Uh, and uh, and yet, uh, it's identified in a very specific way. These people are the ones who destroyed the temple, but this prince isn't in power yet. He is going to be a super Caesar, <laughs> if you want to call him that. And uh, he's not uh, been installed yet. He's not been recognized yet. We don't know who he is. And uh, and yet uh, we find in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it says that uh, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That is a week of years, seven-year treaty. This fellow is going to... Um, uh, sign this treaty as some sort of maybe a protection treaty with the nation of Israel to somehow gain a foothold in the nation of Israel and maybe even in Temple Mount. And uh, and it says uh, with the many for one week, that is the Jewish people, because that's what Daniel chapter 9 is all about. And that's what he's talking about is this Roman ruler, when the Roman Empire is rebooted in some sort of a conglomerate uh, series of, uh, of uh, kings or rulers, and uh, that conglomerate will uh, will recognize this this guy and he will sign this treaty. It will be a significant event. And we believe that that's exactly what Paul uh, is talking about in 2 Thessalonians, where it says, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And he talks about his character as being the, uh, he's a man of lawlessness as well as a son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes him his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And um, so this guy is going to desecrate the temple by his own idolatry. And that is, he's going to put his own image inside the holy of holies, whatever that might be. It might be a tent or a tabernacle. It might be a, a structure of some sort on Temple Mount. But either way, this fellow is going to desecrate the temple, very similar to uh, the way Antiochus Epiphanes did so with uh, sacrificing a pig on the altar and putting an, all, uh, an idol of Zeus inside the Holy of Holies and then putting his name attached to that idol. And this is going to be the same thing. It's called the, the abomination of desolation. And that's what it says back in Daniel chapter 9. Verse 27, he says, in the middle of this week, this seven-year period, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations, he will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So this fellow will do something that no other Gentile um, king has done, no other Gentile emperor has done, uh, 
except for Antiochus Epiphanes. And so he's going to desecrate the temple. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple once, uh, but that wasn't uh, called an abomination of desolation. The Roman Empire already uh, uh, destroyed the temple and the sanctuary and destroyed the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. But that was not necessarily called the abomination of desolation. But this fellow, this Roman ruler from some parts of the Roman Empire rebooted, and he's going to get this attention. He's going to be revealed at the signing of this treaty. That's where he really makes his entrance into the world stage, you might say. And uh, then uh, in the middle of that seven-year period, he will desecrate the temple with his own image, and he will declare himself uh, to be in the seat of the temple of God. So, Paul already said, I already told you about the man of lawlessness, and it's already at work. It's been at work for 2,000 years, the spirit of that lawlessness, and it's going to come to fruition uh, eventually uh, with this one person taking his place and taking his role in the world global society. And so that's where we find ourselves in verse 8. It says, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. So he will be revealed in this public, uh, maybe a, a very formal public ceremony when he, when he signs this treaty with the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, a, a, this protection treaty of some sort. Uh, and, uh, and yet uh, little do they know what's coming, even though it's already been prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years uh, in advance. And uh, Paul is, is uh, letting you know that not only will he be revealed, but uh, he lets you know right away uh, that he's going to be judged. And so he, he takes you immediately to the end of this man's career to let you know that this is, is going to be an end of his career. And uh, the Lord is going to slay him with the breath of his mouth. And we're going to get to that right after this break. So enjoy the musical interlude. So it's very interesting here as we talk about this this person coming to power and the the New Testament would otherwise call him the Antichrist. Uh, But... uh He's called the lawless one. That is a, a quality of his character that is a, 
clearly identifiable for some reason. Uh, and we've always had rebellion in the human family. That's characterized us uh, since the fall of Adam and Eve and, and since the Tower of Babel. Rebellion has always been a part of the human family because God has allowed it to take place. And yet this is more than, than what you might define as mere rebellion. This is lawlessness. This is a total disregard for law. This isn't just disobeying certain laws or, or becoming a criminal of the law. This is, this is declaring that there is no law and uh, that this is the way this person operates. There is no law above him. And uh, he is the law in many regards, but he's described as being lawless. So be careful and uh, watch out for those people who, uh, who say that uh, uh, truth is only what you make it to be or that uh, the law or morality or the absolutes of morality is only what you think it might be or what you feel it might be because these things do not change. It is a characteristic of, of a, a whole generation, you might say now, that... Uh, that is held to a form of lawlessness. And yet this is a person that will embody lawlessness in his own character. But in his rise to power and in his being revealed, it, uh, Paul wants you to know that he is going to face a judgment of his own by the Lord himself. He says, will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So the Lord is going to return. This guy has a limited amount of time on this earth to do his wicked things and uh, to do his his evil things, to, to do his idolatrous, blasphemous things. But it will only last for a short amount of time, and, and then the Lord himself is going to return, and he will judge this person. And it says uh, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, he says, but the righteous he will judge the poor. Uh, that, I'm sorry, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. Talking about uh, God and uh, decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. That's what we're all yearning for in many regards. That those who are oppressed will will someday uh, get their uh, their rightness uh, uh, settled, and that uh, those who did the oppression will be judged one day. And we're waiting upon the Messiah to do His work of judgment. When He returns, He will right all the wrongs. He will judge all the oppressors, and. Uh, and it says, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth uh, and the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked, which is a strange metaphor that... Uh is chosen by the prophet Isaiah, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And uh, and yet that's exactly what happened. And you kind of wonder, well, what is that referring to? Uh, it's kind of difficult to imagine a weapon coming out of someone's uh, mouth. And yet this metaphor is reused um, uh, and yet it's exercised <laughs> in a very practical way. It, it, uh, we get a glimpse of that, that way in which it was practiced by Jesus himself uh, in John chapter 18, verses 5 and 6, when he's being arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. It says, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. That's who he's, there, they, are, there were, uh, they were searching for, the search party. And uh, he said to them, I am he. And that actually is just one word. It's one Greek 
uh, uh, word, and it basically is the title from the Old Testament, the I am word, and yet it's uh, it's in the Greek form of, of the language. It says, and Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Jesus' own words coming from his own lips caused these this Roman uh, arresting uh, posse to to fall down on the ground just by his utterance of the uh, of his of his answer to that question, uh, and he says, "I am," uh, and that that is enough to bring them to their knees. You see, and so you have there a revelation in some regards, a glimpse, a hint of what God will do and what Jesus is going to do with. Uh, this uh, man of lawlessness, the we know him as the Antichrist, and so when Jesus returns, uh, the, he will he will slay him with the breath of his mouth, and that's all it's going to take. And uh, what's interesting is uh, the the hymn that Martin Luther wrote uh, many many years ago: uh, "A mighty fortress is our God." Uh, there's a there's a phrase in there that that's always a, kind of a mysterious little phrase that says one little word will fell him talking about satan one little word will fell him uh, how can that be what is that little word i've i've, I've sung that song lots of times growing up uh, questioning what, what is that word and uh, i've come to the conclusion it doesn't matter what the word is it, it it's any little word if it comes from the mouth of jesus it has a authority. And in uh, in that case, in the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 18, it was that word, I am. And that is all it took to bring the soldiers to their knees. And the entire group of people were overwhelmed by that simple utterance of that little word. And so so I believe that's that's all uh, a part of what Paul is getting at here. Who's coming? Uh, his and he's talking now. He's talking about the the lawless one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. This plot has been around for a long, long time, and uh, uh, the uh, the enemy has been a, a part of bringing a, about this plot. It started in Genesis chapter uh, three, and uh, it's continued on uh, that uh, the enemy is trying to build his own empire with his own um, uh, power structure, you might say, his own triune, his own triune set of uh, characters. And that's, that's the, the Antichrist and the false prophet and him by, uh, controlling the, uh, the motives and controlling the, the, the direction of, of the ruling power of this rebooted Roman Empire against the nation of Israel and against the God of the nation of Israel and his holy place. So it says, he says uh, it's all a part of Satan's own work that he brought uh, he brought about in this fellow with all power and signs and false wonders and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. So the enemy is going to empower this person. And what's interesting is there are only... Uh, 
there are only two people that are described in the Bible as being inhabited by Satan himself. Now, there were many other people that had demonic spirits or or evil spirits or fallen spirits, uh, you might call them, and uh, and they were influenced greatly. Uh, one fellow in the Bible had uh, had a legion of spirits within him, but there's only two people in the in the scriptures that are described as being inhabited directly by Satan himself. One of those is uh, Judas Iscariot in Luke chapter 22, verse 3, and John chapter 13, verse 27. And then we find this character called the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction. Uh, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, which is uh, right here, and Revelation chapter 13, verse 2. So, uh, so he will... Uh, uh, he will have all deception of wickedness for those who perish, false signs and false wonders and false power he's going to exhibit. That gives us a warning, you see. We are not to be susceptible that just because someone has some sort of miraculous abilities about them that appear supernatural, even though they may very well be supernatural, that doesn't mean they are of God. The, in fact, the, it says here that if they appear supernatural, they can be used for deception. So don't be deceived that just because someone uh, has a supernatural ability doesn't mean they're from God or that their messages are from God or that they are in any way inhabited by God because Satan could very well duplicate or at least mimic some of those same things. And so um, notice it says, they're going to deceive uh, deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. These people are susceptible uh, to this deception. Why? Because they've already rejected the truth. Paul began this entire section in verse 3 of chapter 2 by saying, let no one in any way deceive you. It is always a possibility that even true believers could be deceived. And so we've been warned, you see, to not be deceived, be alert to those who who uh, may even be performing signs and and uh, and wonders and miracles just uh, that doesn't validate a person uh, because uh, that doesn't give them authority over us we should find our authority in the written word of god and in our relationship to jesus christ and uh, but these people have have didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved these are not saved people because they rejected the truth they went after other things. So it's almost as if uh, uh, God judges them with their own desires. In other words, they've rejected the truth. So God says, all right, then you are going to live by your own deceptions and you will be susceptible to the deception of this very evil person. For this reason, it says, verse 11, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Notice this deluding influence is is not uh, is not put into place to keep people from getting saved that want to be saved. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is those who've rejected the truth. God will, um, uh, in uh, I guess, appease that rejection by saying, "Okay, then uh, then you're you're going to believe what's false if you're not going to believe the truth." In order that uh, 
Verse 12, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth. The truth is an important thing because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. no one comes to the Father but by me. You see, we, we have rejected anything uh, about uh, absolute truth these days so that uh, truth is anything you, you, you want to make it to be. Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And there's no hierarchy of truth that some things are more true than other things, that some truth has been corrupted with lies and deception. There is no uh, uh, variegation uh of truth, and uh, and yet that's exactly what we have today—a complete variegation of what people call the truth, and uh, and yet. It says that uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In Romans chapter 3, verse 4, it says, May it never be, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. We do have to come to that conclusion, that commitment or that clarity that God is true. And even if that means everybody else is a deceiver, then let's stand with the truth of God. The gospel is the truth. According to uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel. Jesus died for your sins and rose again, and he gives you the free gift of eternal life. That is the truth. The truth is he is your substitute. He paid for your sin. That is the truth. The gospel is the truth. The grace of God is the truth. And uh, that what is, that is what he has delivered to us so that we would not be deceived. And, and we may try to seek deliverance from oppression, deliverance from our sin, deliverance by, by uh, looking to politicians or government or, or this particular fellow as the ruler of the world at one point. Uh, and yet he is not our hope. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is the one that we cling to because he is the truth and he is giving us the message of the truth in him. Father, thank you for these words of clarity, these words of understanding, these words that guard us against deception of the enemy as he begins to play out his agenda. We just pray that you would continue to unfold your word to our hearts and minds in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our presentation today. This is Glendal Tony. Join us again for the next episode of Feeding the Flock.